At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. There are certain moments in time, certain events that happen that are so profound they can shape uh, the entire psyche of a culture or a community. Uh, I was just this past weekend, I got a chance to see my, my grams. Uh, my grams is 90 years old and she's awesome. I love my grams and I got to see her for a couple days. And if you asked my grams, what was something that was an event that shaped her life over it? She would probably point to one of the most significant days in her childhood, December 7th, 1941, and the attack that happened on Pearl Harbor and kicked off America's entrance into World War II. President Roosevelt famously said it was a day that lived in infamy. Such a tragic, momentous moment that it shifted the whole psyche of the culture. And as they, she watched uncles and family members go off to war to fight the axis of evil at the time, it completely shaped how she viewed and experienced the world even as a young child. For, for many of us in this room, one of those shaping events was September 11th, 2001, which this September will honor 20 years since the attack on the World Trade Center on 9-11. Many of us can remember the exact place where we were at when that happened. I was living in Egypt at the time and so had a unique experience on some of those events. But it was so momentous, it it shifted how we thought about the world, what we thought about terror, what we thought about all sorts of things. Oftentimes in each generation, there's kind of these moments that shape our entire cultural psyche and how we kind of experience the world together. And often, how we feel about some of those events, like a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11, is in many ways similar to how the Jewish people would have felt about what took place in 587 B.C., when the Babylonian Empire came marching into the nation of Judah and its capital of Jerusalem and laid waste to the city, completely and totally destroying it, literally leveling it to the ground. It would forever affect the way that they encountered the world, that the way they thought of it. And as we've kind of kicked off last week this study that we're calling Good Morning as we're looking at the book of Lamentations, it's that momentous event that shapes much of what comes out of the book that we are studying what was written in response to the significant cultural event that happened in 587 shapes much of the author's understanding and relationship and struggle to how he relates to God in the midst of that suffering. And it's why, as we've leaned into this book, it's helped, beginning to help us understand how the events of our own lives kind of shape our own suffering and devastation and pain as we experience In the book of Lamentations, we find five poetic laments, five cries out to God in response to the devastation of Jerusalem. 
And the author is crying out in the midst of just complete and other pain. And he uses this familiar form of prayer called lament, a way in which we encounter God in the midst of suffering and we pray to him. And last week, we kind of kicked off the series by looking at chapter 1 and seeing how lament and the journey of lament allows us in our most devastating moments to ask God the toughest questions. The author comes to God in the midst of his pain and he asks God, how can this happen? What did I do to deserve this? God, don't you see the suffering that I am experiencing? Lament allows us to lean into God in kind of our darkest moments. But now, as he moves into chapter 2, as he begins to write his second poem, he begins to relate to God in a unique and different way. The question that kind of hangs over Lamentations chapter 2 is how do we relate to God when he seems like he's our enemy. You know, one of the things that's the reality of Pearl Harbor or 9-11 is that there were very distinct enemies that shaped those events. Whether it was Japan and the axis of either, whether it was Al-Qaeda and the terrorist network, there were things that we have in our mind where we shape those events towards the enemy that attacked or did that. And in Jerusalem, it would have been natural for them in the experience of their own devastation to turn their attention ultimately towards the Babylonian Empire to cry out that this enemy that has completely and destroyed their city and laid waste to their nation. But in Lamentations chapter 2, the author seems instead not to point his finger at the Babylonians, but actually to point his finger at to God himself. Well, in chapter 1, the cry is, see and notice my suffering. The cry in chapter 2 is that, God, you have become the enemy of your people. It's a familiar feeling that happens when we experience tremendous pain or suffering. We wrestle with how to relate to God. What do we do when we experience that? Oftentimes, maybe you in your life have experienced those moments of pain and you feel in your head, naturally, God, it feels like you are against me. It it might even feel like you've not just turned your back to me and are ignoring my pain, but it actually seems like through this trial that it seems like you're actually opposed to me. And that's what the author is experiencing and wrestling with as he comes into Lamentations chapter 2. In fact, in the first 10 verses, almost every line is marked by the word he or the Lord. He did this. The Lord did this. He's the problem ultimately in what I am experiencing. And he begins to relate that ultimately what they experienced in the devastation of Jerusalem is because of God's anger. In fact, in the first 10 verses of Lamentations chapter 2, the anger of the Lord and his judgment is referenced over 40 times in the stanzas that are written. The author's wrestling with how do I understand God in the midst of the devastation that I am experiencing in my life and all around me. Is God opposed to me? Is he the enemy? Because that's what it sure feels like. And what do we do? How do we relate to God when it seems like he's actually against us? Well, what we see in Lamentations chapter 2 is that when God becomes our enemy, we must cry out to him. And he teaches us how we are to understand God in the moments 
where it seems like he is actually opposed to us. Three, I think, key truths that we need to kind of begin to unpack ultimately out of Lamentations chapter 2. The first one we see kind of come right away in the first four verses of the text. Look at it with me. It says in verse 1, how Now again, remember, we unpacked this last week. That word how is a very loaded term in the words of lamentations. It's the Hebrew word echa, and echa is both a question and a statement. It's a wrestling term where it both questions God, how is this, and it exclaims to him, how God is this possible? And so he says, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He begins right away wrestling with the tension. How is it that God would take his own daughter Zion, a reference to God's people and the fact that Zion is the center of worship? How would God suddenly move them into a place where it seems like they are under or away from his presence? The cloud is often a symbol throughout the Old Testament of God's presence among his people. God led his people by a cloud by day and fire by night. But here, the cloud seems not to be a symbol of his presence, but a symbol of division, that God is now separated from his people and that he has done this in his anger. The author continues to lament, he has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. So as he laments this division, he recognizes that there is a separation that he has experienced and their people are experiencing with God. Remember, Jerusalem was the center of worship. It was the center where God's presence was amongst his people. And at the center of that place was the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. It's where heaven and earth overlapped and was a symbol of God's original intention in creation in Eden to overlap heaven and earth in the way that he made things. But now it seems like that's actually been separated, that God's people have been thrown out of heaven And it is no more overlap. The term he uses here that he's not remembered his footstool. The footstool is a common reference to the temple in the Old Testament. What the author is lamenting is there now seems to be a division. Where God was for his people, now there is separation. But not only is there separation, there also seems to be opposition. Look at verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's removed all their military might as a country. He's withdrawn from them his right hand, a symbol of help. God no longer helps his people in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Again, fire, this symbol of God's presence, is now a symbol of God's opposition against his own people. The author is lamenting that God has reacted to Israel out of anger. But why is God so angry with his people? What is it that would cause God to bring himself to a place of such anger against the covenant people that he loved and formed for his self? Well, the answer is clear in the book of Lamentations. 
it was because of their sin and their disobedience. God had warned Israel from the very beginning. From the moment God brought them out of Egypt, rescued them, and formed them as his covenant nation, that they were going to be a light to the other nations, a kingdom of priests. But in order for them to be that, they must walk in obedience with God. That they must be holy as he is holy. And God warned that if they wouldn't walk in obedience with God, at some point they would suffer the consequences of their sin. That God would remove his hand of blessing and they would experience his judgment. You actually see this all the way back in the Torah, the first five books in Deuteronomy 28, where God gives them the very warning that they would experience this sort of devastation. God warns them that they walk in obedience, they will experience blessing. But in Deuteronomy 28, 15, he says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Listen to what one of the curses is just a few verses later in 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord God has given you. You see, God had warned Israel If you walk in perpetual disobedience, if you continue to ignore my call and my way, then at some point judgment will come. God is a God of long-suffering. He is a God of patience and love. But there is a moment where we become so obstinate to God in our sin that he must bring judgment in order to deal with our disobedience. And that's what Israel is experiencing in this moment. God has been patient, but the time for judgment has come. And what it helps us to realize from the get-go is that God is always righteous in pouring out his anger. God is not flippant with his anger. He doesn't just fly off the handle. No, God is always righteous in pouring out his anger because it is his response to sin to perpetual sin and disobedience. We know that where there is perpetual disobedience, that anger is an appropriate response. Kiddos, you're in this room this morning. You know the longer that you don't listen to mom and dad, the more anger often comes, right? And that's a natural response to disobedience. Because the more we disobey, the more it stirs within us the reaction of injustice and unrighteousness. And what we see is that God's anger is ultimately in response to the disobedience of Israel and that the suffering and judgment they're experiencing is due to their sinfulness. Now, it's good for us to clarify, as I did last week, not every suffering that we experience in life is due to a specific sin that we have committed. All suffering is related to sin. If there was no sin, there would be no suffering. There would be no need for lament. But every suffering you experience in life is not a direct one-to-one correlation with a personal sin that you have committed. Although there are times where you experience suffering in life because of your personal sin. When it comes to wrestling through the realities and events of our lives, we have to be careful of erring on both sides. We both can't dismiss our own personal sin and say, well, it's just 
what happens, and we can't connect everything to every personal sin. What we must do is seek the Lord and help him to help us realize why are we walking through What is it that is leading to the place that I find myself in? In Israel's case, they're experiencing this as the Lord reveals as a direct result of their sinfulness. God is allowing and coming against them because of their sin. That's why in verse 17, it says it very clearly. The Lord has done what he has purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. God comes in opposition against his people's sin by withdrawing his hand of blessing and allowing them to experience the consequence of their idolatry, their unrighteousness, and their injustice. What we see here in verse 4, and what we, or in the first four verses that we have to reckon with is what sometimes I think people call the other side of God's character. I think often when we come to think of how God relates ultimately to our own sinfulness and brokenness in our lives, most of us are perfectly fine talking about God's love, God's mercy, God's grace. All those things are biblically true and right. But there's also a second side to how God deals to our sin, which is his wrath or his judgment. It is his direct opposition to that which would destroy his world. And when we think of God, we must recognize that while God is love, he is also angry at sin. He is directly opposed to it. I think one of the things sometimes we can fall prey to in our day and age is misunderstanding the character of God or reinterpreting God's character through only one lens of who he ultimately reveals himself to be. I remember a few years ago I was in a conversation with a a group of pastors and we were discussing theology because that's what pastors do, right? So, and we were having this conversation and we were talking and wrestling with the tension of God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment towards sin, the reality of hell, these things that we see in scripture. And one of the pastors just said kind of in the moment, he's like, well, I don't know about all of that because really we know that God is love and everything else that we understand about God must be interpreted through the idea that God is love. I thought, well, that's convenient because then you can just reinterpret everything you don't like about God through your definition of love. But the other problem that as I sat and thought about that in that moment and have reflected since then is that that actually isn't the chief characteristic of God that we see in Scripture over and over again. God is love. Do not let me hear you say that. 1 John is clear. But there is a single attribute that Scripture claims of who God is over and over again, and that is that God is holy. God is holy. It's the holiness of God, Isaiah 6, that the angel or the seraphim proclaim around his throne continually, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, the reality of God's characteristics is that God is completely separate and different than us. 
He is perfectly holy in his nature and all of God's characteristics fall under his holiness and work in perfect harmony together. God's character is not in contradiction. They work in harmony in how he relates ultimately to the world. In our day and age, we often reinterpret God in a way that gives permissiveness towards sin instead of recognizing that in God's holiness, yes, he is loving, but he is also opposed and angry over sin. God does not stand for what would destroy his good world and come against him. God's love is always in harmony with his justice. God's mercy is always in correspondence with his righteousness. God operates out of the fullness of his characteristics in perfect harmony. That's the nature of who he is as God. And I think oftentimes we struggle to recognize that God is righteous in pouring out his anger because we project onto God an unrighteous sense of anger. We think of anger through how we experience it instead of holding God as holy and recognizing that God, even in his anger, is perfect and different than us. So what is God's anger? How do we wrestle with this? Walter Kaiser, I think, provides a really helpful understanding of these first few verses in his commentary on Lamentations. He writes this, The problem is that anger can and does come dangerously close to evil when it is left unchecked, and without control. That as a matter of fact is what is wrong with most definitions of anger. They imply a loss of self-control and impulsiveness and a temporary derangement. No wonder no one wants to link God with that definition. On the contrary, God's anger is never explosive, unreasonable, or unexplainable. It is rather his firm expression of real displeasure with our wickedness and sin. Even in God, his anger is never a force or a ruling passion. Rather, it is always an instrument of his will, and his anger has not thereby shut off his compassion to us. And here's the key. God's anger marks the end of indifference. You see, God's anger is when he can no longer be indifferent towards our sinfulness and our wickedness, and so he moves against us to recognize that sin cannot be left unchecked or it will destroy us. The thing we have to recognize when we think of the, even the Israel, because sometimes it's hard in Lamentations to go, man, this is heavy. This was a wicked people. Some believe that Israel had gotten to the point where they were so wicked against God in their idolatry that they were offering child sacrifices that they were perpetually embracing unrighteousness and wickedness to the point where they had completely turned. And God is righteous then to come and to judge our sin. God is holy, and we should fear him. That is an appropriate response. It is only when we recognize the reality of God's holiness that his mercy only becomes that much sweeter. Grace is only amazing when it stands in the reality of judgment. And what we see is that God judges sin. And that's what we see in the second part of this passage. That not only is God righteous in pouring out his anger, but God is exhaustive in dealing with our sin. 
He comes in his anger and opposes his people. Listen to the next several verses in verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid ruins in its stronghold, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentations. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay it in ruins, the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused Rampart and Wall to lament. They languished together. What the author cries out and recognizes is that when God comes to deal with the pervasiveness of our sin, he comes to deal with it exhaustively. Remember, he writes these poems as an acrostic, moving through the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, showing us suffering from A to Z, from beginning to end. And what we see even in this is that God's judgment against sin is total and severe. I mean, if you were just keeping count of what he describes in these first few verses of the way God brings judgment against sin, this is all the stuff he relates to what God laid to ruin in Israel in judgment. God laid to ruin the buildings, Verse 2, the fortresses, the kingdom, the rulers, the strength of Israel, the city, the palaces, the festival, the Sabbath, the priests, the altar, the sanctuary, the city wall, the city gates, the instruction of the law, and the vision of the prophets. What we see in Lamentations chapter 2 is that God destroyed everything in Israel that they looked to for safety, security, and significance. They were laid to ruin because of their sin. You see, the reality is sin is such a destructive force in our lives and in our world that when God brings judgment against it, he has no choice but to completely and utterly exhaustively deal with it. Sin is like cancer. It has to be removed or it just continues to infect You know the devastation of cancer. Many of us have experienced it through loved ones and people who have walked that journey, or maybe you have walked it yourself. And you know that the way in which cancer must be treated because it is such a devastating and severe reality is that the treatment often is equally devastating and severe. Parts of our bodies have to be removed or cut off to try to get rid of it. Chemotherapy and radiation used to try to kill as much of it as it can. Why? Because if even small parts of cancer are left in our body, at some point they multiply and begin to again kill living cells and wreak devastation on us physically. That's the same idea of sin in our world. Sin where it is left unchecked in our lives, in our societies, in our culture, where it is not exhaustively dealt with, will continue to breed destruction until it utterly destroys us. And God, in his kindness knows that sin is so devastating and severe that the only way to deal with it is exhaustively. And totally. And that's what he does amongst his people. He brings a totality of destruction. He lays ruin to their culture because of the pervasiveness of sin. 
the reality of sin is so strong that the judgment is so severe. But the question often we ask then is, what hope do we have? And this is where we must remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel. Yes, God is righteous in his anger. He stands wrathfully opposed to sin. Yes, God will bring judgment and exhaustively deal with sin. But the truth of the gospel is that for those of us in Christ Jesus, God has already done that. He has exhaustively dealt with our sin on the cross. That God poured out his wrath on his son so that you would not experience the full judgment and wrath that he pours out on sin in your life. And you could have eternity with him. Be reminded of what God did in Christ in dealing with the exhaustiveness and reality of sin. Isaiah chapter 53, one of the great Hebrew prophets, reminds us of God's promise of how he would deal for, with sin back then, but even how he has dealt with us for us now. He reminds us of the reality of Christ. He says, Surely he, looking forward to Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his The good news of the gospel, friends, is that God willed the crushing of his son so that he would not have to crush you. And that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know that yes, God is righteous in his anger. He is perfect in his judgment, but God has placed that judgment on Christ so that you can have a hope of relationship with him and an eternity with him that you can be declared righteous and good, that you can be holy as he is holy. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that you might be the righteousness of God. What great and glorious news. Lamentations forces us to look at the reality of the way God deals with sin, but it also calls us in the journey of lament to recognize that God provides an answer for our sin in Christ Jesus. And you say, okay, praise God. Then what is the response that we see in Lamentations chapter 2 in light of the severity of our sin and the reality of the cross? And it's simply this, that God is working to bring us to repentance. That the appropriate response to both God's judgment and God's mercy 
is to turn from our sin and turn towards him. And this is what we see the author do later on in Lamentations 2 as he continues to lament the experience of God's judgment against them. He then says this in verse 18. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Again, he recounts the pain and suffering that he endures. And then he says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. See, ultimately, his journey and lament brings him to the place of crying out to God. When we experience the judgment of God, when we face the reality of our sin, it should lead us to the place where we turn and cry to God. We see the three simple actions that he takes in this. He arises. He turns. So often when we're in the place of our own misery, we can get stuck there. Don't get stuck in the cul-de-sac of your own misery and self-focus. Lament is a journey in which we turn from our sin, we turn from our suffering, and we turn towards God. Lament starts with turning to Him. But then He cries. He complains. He laments the pain and experience of suffering because of His sin. He pours out His heart like water before the Lord. Have you done that? Are you in suffering? Are you experiencing and feeling like God's opposed to you? Arise. Cry out. Say, God, this really sucks right now. Where are you at? It feels like you're against me. Like, why is this happening? And then in the midst of that place, pour out your heart. Turn from your sin and turn to him and hear his healing words. Remember the reality and truth of Christ. God's judgment, his opposition to us, his people, is temporary. It has a goal. The goal is to help us to turn from sin and receive more of the life that he desires for us. And lament is a journey in which we step into the pain of what we experience. We turn towards God so we can experience more of him in our lives. And next week, we'll see in Lamentations 3 how that happens. But what God wants to remind us of is all of us in this room and in this place, we have stuff in our lives that God wants to deal with. We're in a journey where God is beginning to stir up things to show us to turn from our sin and towards him. It might be hard, but it has a purpose. That's sometimes what suffering brings. You know, I'm, one of the things I love to make for my kids um, uh, for, for lunch or dinner is mac and cheese. And the reason I like to make mac and cheese is because I don't know how to cook. So like boiling water, pouring in something, putting a timer on, I can do that. That's like the extent of my cooking ability. But I, I distinctly remember a, a while back, I went to make my kids some uh, mac and cheese and I pulled out the pot and I filled it up with water and I turned on the fire and or the the burner and uh and i walked away and a few minutes later i came back and i looked down in the pot and there was all this like gunk 
like that black stuff that had like hardened on the bottom of the pan, probably because I didn't wash it at some point, just shoved it back into the thing, right? And, but all of a sudden it was like there, it was like present at the top. Like I didn't see it when I pulled out the pan, but suddenly it was and I was like, shoot, I got to deal with this or my kids are going to eat some nasty mac and cheese. Right? Oftentimes the hardship of our life can be a little bit like turning on a burner in a pot of dirty water. Like it kind of stirs up the junk that's underneath. Right? We're real good at just kind of living a very surfacey life where we're okay, but suddenly things get hard and it forces us to recognize, oh, maybe I do have some issues with God. Maybe there is something in my life that I'm not willing to surrender to him. Maybe there is a sin that's continuing to breed consequences time and time and time again, and I've never dealt with it. See, God doesn't come in opposition to just slam you. He comes in opposition to raise those dirty parts of our life and say, hey, I'm here to clean those up. Right? I didn't just leave the water dirty. No. You dump it out. You put fresh water in. The pan's clean. And now my kids can have delicious Aldi mac and cheese. But that's why God comes. He comes to say, recognize the dirt. I'm coming to clean that junk out. I'm coming to take that thing you've been holding on down deep, that resentment, that bitterness, that brokenness, that sin, that struggle. I want that to come to the surface, not so I can blast you, so I can clean you. So I can take you and I can heal you. You can experience more of me, a fuller heart, a fuller life. And lament is a process in which we turn from that, we acknowledge our junk to God, and then we let him speak that forgiveness over us again. Corinthians tells us it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. God might feel opposed to you, but when you cry out to him in that moment, you will begin to experience the kindness of God. And it is his grace and mercy that is experienced in the place of repentance. And so this morning as we close, I just want to give us a few minutes, a few minutes to maybe there's something God's just been stirring in your heart to just acknowledge that and bring that before him. So Daniel's just going to play for a minute, and I'm just going to invite you. If there's something God just laying on your heart that the Holy Spirit's stirring up, that you're feeling like, yeah, there is this thing, and maybe you just need to bring that before the Lord in confession this morning and just say, God, I don't know what to do with this, but this is hard. This hurts. I feel like I can't break this cycle. Would you come and help? God wants to meet you in that place and start to lead you towards the life he has for you. Just let's take a minute or two, just quietly while Daniel plays, and then I'll pray for us in a minute.
God, I just give you thanks right now for just even the things you're stirring up just briefly in a moment. And I'm thankful, God, that we have a way we can bring those things to you. You don't stir those up to push us away or to slam us down. You invite us into the journey of lament so that we can acknowledge those broken parts of our hearts and our lives and that you desire to bring healing. God, we know you're holy. Thank you for that. We know you stand against sin. Thank you for your justice. But God, thank you that you saw us in your sin and you made a way back to yourself in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you love us, that he was stricken and smitten and beaten and crushed so we wouldn't be. That he received our punishment so that we could be set free. And so God, where in light of the gospel, where we see those areas of our lives that maybe we haven't surrendered to you, would you help us to continue to walk that journey of repenting, of turning from sin and coming back to you, of crying out and arising and pouring our hearts out to you. Even now as we prepare to worship, would you just continue to work as we sing these beautiful words and we cry this prayer out in some ways together. Would you draw us back to Christ? Bind us to our Savior, I pray. Remind us of the hope we have in him. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.